0: Hello and welcome to World Canvas. My name is Joan Kerr. World Canvas is a production of international programs at the University of Iowa and we're very happy to have you with us for this program, focusing on a pivotal figure of the 20th century, Mohandas or Mahatma Gandhi. Revered around the world for his activism, self-sacrifice and nonviolent methods of confronting a a repressive global power, Gandhi remains a much-admired figure today, but Gandhi was a controversial figure in his own time, and perceptions in 2021 are no less mixed. 2019 was the 150th anniversary of Gandhi's birth, and we've gathered an exceptional group of scholars to reflect on the man, his place in history, and the legacy that remains decades after his death. In our program tonight, we're going to break the discussion into three segments. The first will focus on Gandhi and nonviolence, the second on caste, and the third will be devoted to Gandhi's legacy. It is my great pleasure to introduce my first guests. Rajman Gandhi is a research professor in education policy, organization, and leadership at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Claiborne Carson is the Martin Luther King, Jr. Centennial Professor Emeritus at Stanford University and director of the Martin Luther King, Jr. Institute. And Joseph Alter is a professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, Welcome. It's an honor to have you join us this evening. Uh, You are the grandson of Mohandas Gandhi, Rajmohan. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Uh, What a pleasure to talk with you.
1: Well, I'm delighted to be with you and everybody else. (laughs)
0: Thank you. Uh, I believe you were 12 when your grandfather was assassinated. How close had you been during your young life?
1: Well, you know, he was much of the time in British prisons. So Mm -hmm. I didn't see him all that often. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or he was in different parts of the country. But he did spend the final two years of his life, not continuously, but large chunks of it in New Delhi, which is where my father was working as editor. And during that time, in his final two years, I saw a good deal of it. When he was going from 76 to 78, and I was going from 10 to 12.
0: Uh, well, there's so much, of course, to say about that family relationship and, uh, and your own personal life. But tonight, we want to focus in this first segment of the program on uh, your grandfather's views on nonviolence as a tactical tool for political and social change. How did Gandhi view nonviolence?
1: So, uh, of course, I think as far as I know, Gandhi was perhaps the first to use even the phrase Nonviolent or nonviolent direct action for political change uh, or to fight against injustice. And Martin Luther King Jr., of course, then used it powerfully and effectively. And it was a King who said uh, in uh, 59, uh, one of his sermons in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, that Gandhi was able, without lifting a gun, without uttering a single curse word, uh, he forced the British Empire to leave. So now, so Gandhi. Uh, when he was in his twenties and thirties in India and then in South Africa, where he spent some time. So he ran into uh, officers of the empire or those who were for white supremacy in South Africa. People who believed that uh, uh, they felt honored by the humiliation of others. So this this is what Gandhi reacted against. People feeling honored by the humiliation of others. And he decided he would fight it, but he also decided that he would not give to others the humiliation that he himself had experienced. And so this was the root of uh, of nonviolence, the strategy of nonviolence. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, are, are there links between Gandhi's views on nonviolence and um, Thoreau's civil disobedience?
1: Uh, of course, uh, uh, great many links. Uh, But it's worth noting that uh, although Thoreau's uh, book was was published in the late late 1840s, from what little I have researched, Gandhi, a tremendous admirer of Thoreau, uh, and in his uh, book Hind Swaraj, a very famous book of Gandhi's, short book, published in 1910, he makes lots of references to Thoreau. However, His first struggle for uh, justice uh, for the Indian community of South Africa against the uh, white uh, rulers of South Africa, uh, a nonviolent struggle, took place in 1907, 1908, before he had studied Thoreau. And uh, my research tells me that when he was imprisoned by the South African uh, regime, in prison, that is for the first time he made a deeper study of Thoreau's book. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm You know, uh, in preparation for this program, I rewatched a movie that I know many of us have seen, and uh, there's this is the film Gandhi by Attenborough, and um, there is a, a moment where uh, one of the speakers mentions uh, that it's it's time to for to get beyond passive resistance, and Gandhi says, "I don't I don't I'm not a proponent of passive resistance. I, I believe that we need to be provocative and and." Uh, push our claims forward and so on. Um, tell us, it, it, yeah. Yeah. Expand so Gandhi, on that a little bit for me.
1: So Gandhi was very emphatic on that, that he was he was a, in, his, in his own expression. He was a militant fight, a militant fighter, but not a violent fight.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and
1: he did not want other people to be humiliated. But he, he wasn't going to accept humiliation for himself or for his people. He didn't want any of the oppressed people of the world to accept humiliation. He wanted them to fight back. Mm -hmm. But fight, uh, this was, of course, a very tough call. Mm -hmm. You you want to fight, and yet you don't want to hate the enemy. In fact, you want to love the enemy. Mm -hmm. It was a very tough call. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the strategy of nonviolent direct action Mm -hmm. did mobilize uh, so many people, uh, not only in India, United States, but in other parts of the world.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, help us understand why there was so much violence at the, at the moment of independence.
1: Well, you know, uh, there was a, a, a very interesting African-American figure called uh, Stuart, William Stuart Nelson, who was a, uh, connected with Howard University in Washington, D.C. And he was in India in 46, 47, for, uh, at the time of independence. And Gandhi was at that time in Eastern India. It's today Bangladesh, which is then one single uh, United country. Uh, but already as independence is about to come, but violence was already taking place in different parts of India. So Nelson said to Gandhi, you have been preaching nonviolence to India for 30 years. Why then so much violence today? So Gandhi said, you're asking me a very difficult question, but a very important question. Now, here, I'm not giving you exactly Gandhi's words, but I'm paraphrasing what Gandhi said. Gandhi said to Nelson that I've been asking India to do two things, Indians, fear not and hate not. Don't fear the British, don't hate the British. Gandhi said, fear not was more popular than hate not. mm mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm.
1: And he said, uh, willingness to hate the white man soon became a willingness to hate the fellow Indian. Mm-hmm. The, the desire to hate somebody or willingness to hate somebody became willingness to hate. Uh, if you were a Muslim, you hate the Hindu. If you were a Hindu, hate the Muslim. Mm-hmm. So it was the uh, inability of Indians to, to accept the hate, not part of his message mm-hmm. that he felt. This was his, his understanding.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, could you offer a comparison between India's struggle for freedom from British rule with the black struggle here in the United States for freedom and equality? Uh,
1: well, I can make one or two uh, mm-hmm. general remarks. Uh, I think it's important to note that uh, India was under, you might say, the imperialist heel. The British empire was very strong. It was, However, even at the height of British power in India, the number of uh, white soldiers or white civilians who were controlling India was very small compared with the vast Indian population. So the Indians who inspired, led by Gandhi, were fighting non-violently for independence, uh, had tremendous support in the population the majority, the vast majority of the people of India were rooting for the nonviolent fighters. Mm-hmm. But when the African-Americans were fighting for uh, justice here, I, I'm not talking about the entire history of 400 years, okay. but uh, say, say during the uh, 20th century, uh, King and uh, others with him. So, they were faced with a large population which was not in favor. So, uh, so this was a very major difference. Uh-huh. Uh, it was in, in some ways tougher in the United States uh-huh. because there were, yes, many in the white population also, uh, some quickly and some after some time were willing to support or at least to not stand in the way but a large section of the population was absolutely against the struggle. Mm-hmm. So yes, the, the, uh, there was the oppression in India too, the British rule with its guns and its tanks, it, it wasn't a, uh, a child's play to overthrow British rule. Right. But the fact that there was this very great support from the populace uh, around the, the fighters made a big difference uh, in India, which exactly. was lacking here to begin with in the United States.
0: Right, right. Well, perhaps that leads us uh, to our next guest, um, Claiborne Carson, pleasure to have you here. And as I mentioned earlier, you're a professor at Stanford University and you also direct the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute. Um, As we know, Gandhi is perhaps best known here in the US for his influence on leaders of the nonviolent civil rights movement in the 50s and in the 60s. Martin Luther King, of course, comes to mind. But there are other critically important Black leaders who took Gandhi's Example, very seriously, um, who were these these uh, black Gandhians?
2: I, I refer to them as the black Gandhians because I think that there is a, a tradition within the black community, as uh, uh, Rajmohan has, has pointed out, of looking to other countries. Not uh, and India was one of the most promising examples because when you when you think about it at, at, at the by the turn of the century at the time when the NAACP is formed in um, 1909, uh, it didn't look very hopeful for black Americans. Uh, We had been through segregation laws had really strengthened in the late 19th century. Uh, So they were facing this uphill fight and they look over and see in India that Gandhi is having some impact in India. So, almost from the time uh, Gandhi arrives in India, um, uh, arrives back in India, uh, and begins to um, identify with the movement for independence, he is uh, featured in in black newspapers. Um, I I went back and looked at the Crisis magazine, which was the NAACP magazine. edited by W.E.B. Du Bois, probably the most prominent uh, black intellectual of the 20th century. And uh, there's an article in it in 1922 about uh, Gandhi and India. And uh, Gandhi, uh, Du Bois later writes to to uh, Gandhi and uh, Gandhi replies with an article which is published in the Crisis Magazine and I think it's 1929. And then after that, um, Uh, Howard Thurman, a a black minister, uh, very prominent, uh, uh, wants to go to India. And this is in the 30s, mid 1930s, when it's very difficult for um, Americans of all races, but black Americans in particular, to make such a long trip But they go and meet personally with Gandhi in uh, 1936 and ask him questions about how, what, how they can apply his ideas um they are not all convinced immediately that uh, these ideas would work in the united states uh the the idea of nonviolence is something that uh you know that there's uh, some acceptance out out of necessity but making it a principle it was difficult for some but they you know this delegation and howard thurman's influence uh on king um, he, he is the Dean of the chapel at Boston University when, when Martin Luther King is a graduate student there. Um, he writes a book, uh, Jesus and the Disinherited, that has a great in, impact, um, but there are other people. Um, Benjamin Mays also uh, goes with uh, as part of this delegation. And uh, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Sue Bailey Thurman, uh, Thurman's wife who uh, actually came to the King Institute um, uh, on one occasion. So this goes back to the 20s and 30s. And by the 1940s, um, you have other people. Uh, Bayard Rustin um, goes there. Uh, he's later King's major advisor after the Montgomery bus boycott. So when Martin Luther King uh, emerges as a leader, he's all listened to people uh, who have been to India, who have absorbed uh, Gandhian ideas. Uh, he goes to a lecture in, in 1950s when he's still a, a student um, and, uh, and, and goes out and buys every book that he can find about, about Gandhi. Um, but I think the most important of these was um, James Lawson who was, who went to India after Gandhi's death but uh, specifically he went there, he was uh, drafted into the military and this was his way of avoiding military service um, by becoming a missionary in India. But he used that as an opportunity to read as much as he could about uh, Gandhian ideas, came back to the United States, um, became King's advisor, but perhaps more importantly, he developed a workshop of, of young, young people, mostly students. Uh, in the late 1950s. And that group were became leaders of the sit-ins of the early 1960s, and later the Freedom Rides. So they actually absorbed these ideas to the point where they wanted to apply them in the United States. Uh, so you had a, a Gandhian movement uh, at the heart of the modern civil rights movement. Um, these, these students, did not, you know, actually they, one of the things that's interesting about them that they did not see themselves as necessarily followers of Martin Luther King. They saw themselves as in the lead of the movement, that they were the vanguard and that Martin Luther King needed to catch up with them uh, because they were actually using civil disobedience uh, on, a, on a pretty massive scale. They, they were, close to 500 students arrested in in the Freedom Rides and who spent most of the summer of 1961 in Parchman Penitentiary in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. So that group I think was was really even more than Martin Luther King uh, responsible for um, showing that these ideas could work in the United States. Yeah. Um, King, I, I think, absorbed the ideas uh, but he was actually fairly reluctant to practice civil disobedience uh, he He did uh, on certain occasions, but um, not with the enthusiasm of the of the young people who had been trained by by james Lawson mm-hmm. um-
0: how, how uh, much did it matter that um, so many of us in various parts of the country, all parts of the country, could watch the evening news and see what was happening with the Freedom Riders in the South or uh, with sit-ins, uh, with people being hosed and dogs being um, sent after um, peaceful protesters in, in various parts of America? How I, I believe that in my own, uh, you know, my own growth, uh, it made... Uh, an incredible difference to be able to see with my own eyes what was happening to people in our country. And um, how how do you feel about the exposure that came from television and and other kinds of media here in in the struggle in the US?
2: Well, I think it was important that uh, the black movement gained this militancy and and, and it was called militancy at the time even though it was Mm nonviolent because it was aggressive. As uh, as Rajmohan has has pointed out, uh, this was not uh, passive. There was nothing that was passive about it. It was taking, and in fact, the Freedom Rides went into the areas of greatest resistance in the South, because yeah. Yeah. they had yeah. the idea that if you if you brought this um, technique, and I think. Lawson would not call it a technique, it was a philosophy of, of nonviolent resistance. And that if you showed that you were not afraid of what the kind of response, even if it meant your death or getting um, brutalized when they tried to use uh, um, white waiting, waiting rooms at bus stations. Yeah. And of course, spending that summer in, in prison, that didn't stop them. Uh, many of the ones who spent the summer of 61 in prison um, made a decision that they were not gonna go back to college, Mm -hmm. that they were going to join the movement full time. And these are the ones who became these field secretaries of the Mm -hmm. Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And uh, these, these these were the people who, when I was a teenager, these were the people I admired. Because the ones who uh, did not seem to have the fear of, you know, I, I had grown up um, hearing the Emmett Till story of what happened to a black teenager, who was murdered in in Mississippi. So the the notion of voluntarily going into the heart of segregation and and uh, and fighting violence with nonviolence. violence yeah. uh, yeah. That was something that was very um, exciting mm-hmm. to me, although I didn't immediately go off and, and join the Freedom Riders.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, let me bring uh, Dr. Alter into the discussion. Um, Joseph Alter, a professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Pittsburgh. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Let me just turn the question of Gandhi's thinking on violence to you. Uh, In what ways has he influenced the world, both in his own time and today?
3: Thank you. It's a real pleasure to uh, join the the stage with my distinguished colleagues. Um, I've been interested in uh, questions that relate to how Gandhi not only advocated to practice what you preach, but to embody. Your practice. Uh, And there are really interesting aspects of his teaching, uh, which I think are lessons for real on the ground practice about how to internalize and embody uh, what some have referred to as the high ideals, but are essentially pragmatic guidelines for putting into practice on a fundamentally embodied level. Uh, the principles of nonviolence, and I've also been interested in the way in which he's really a cosmopolitan world philosopher, even though that has been applied in practice in the context of uh, the freedom struggle, Uh, and in particular, looking at how he advocated diet reform, for example, as linked to the way in which to confront racism. I mean, many people stop and say, how can those two things be connected? Uh, But what he was really trying to do was, I think, uh, and this is evidence from, from his writings, is to experiment with methods by which to make your commitment to ideals comprehensive, in the full sense of all aspects of practice. Um, And as I think others have pointed out, uh, both this evening and, and in the literature, he was drawing on ideas that were coming from all over the world. And I think it's really important to recognize how his impact has been global, but his inspiration was also global. And obviously his achievements in the context of the freedom struggle are unambiguously powerful, uh, but they tend to eclipse his significance as a world philosopher Uh, and I think that there's real importance in in recognizing that and remembering it. I've been especially interested in how, you know, you can look at different aspects of his advocacy for nonviolent resistance um, and then see how that is connected to the experiments in his ashrams, for example where he was advocating health reform amongst his followers as the basis upon which to develop their moral fiber, you might say, uh, to be able to be committed to these ideals. And he himself, you know, reflecting on his very staunch advocacy for nature cure, which he himself referred to as kind of quackery. Uh, is nevertheless something which reflects a kind of environmental consciousness about the extent to which his approach to healing and his approach to the world engaged with the nonviolence of self-care that could empower the activism to stand up against the most overwhelming forms of violence. Uh, And it's interesting to see how he articulated that in a way that from the standpoint of rational pragmatists, sounds like it makes no sense whatsoever. But if you look at the day-to-day life in the ashrams, um, in particular, Nisadbukjad ashram outside of Pune, which he established as a health clinic to help in the development of rural uh, reform and rural uplift, uh, there are really interesting ways in which he was imagining the world in a way that transcended the the way in which we tend to distinguish between nature and culture. And he saw that as the mechanism by which to confront the evils of industrial exploitation in a way that provided an alternative vision of a way in which society could be expanded out from the microcosm of these ashrams. Uh, and the extent of his detailed interest in how that related to working in the kitchen, for example, is, I think, really important to remember given how profound his success was in achieving nonviolence on a level that we all know about very, very well. Uh, but it was fine grained, it was down to earth, it was in the practice of everyday life as well. <laughs>
0: So you mentioned working in the kitchen. Can, can you tell us what, what this meant to him?
3: Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, I mean, it's, and it's not to, in any sense, reduce what he did to that level of, of seeming mundane procedures. Mm-hmm. But he, for example, there's a striking case, I think, in young India, where he says that everyone in the ashram should be adept at both being able to prepare food and clean the toilets and to be able to see in in a way the importance of the value of work in those two aspects uh, that are linked to the body in obvious ways and to be able to thereby experience in the full sense of experience the presence of being in an environment where your work in the kitchen and in the toilet gives you a perspective on the microcosm that expands outward to be encompassing
0: of the world. Sure, sure. I wonder if I can open uh, the last couple of minutes here for, for further conversation. If you, Professor Gandhi or Professor Carson, have anything you would like to say or, or build off of Joe's remarks.
2: I, I think what I would add to them is that uh, I, I've, I've traveled in India and gone to a number of the ashrams uh, uh, that uh, Gandhi founded, and um, I think one thing I would have have as a caution is that often the philosophical and um, broader ideas associated with Gandhi and nonviolence leads to a an isolation. Um, just a, a example of this uh, during the uh, the riots uh, in in Ahmedabad um, when uh, many Muslims were being attacked, um, and there was uh, you know this major violence that happened I guess it was about 15, 20 years ago now and uh, and the response of the of the gun the ashram there was to close its gates uh, rather than to Go out into the community and intercede within this violence, which I think Gandhi would have done. Um, but there is, and I think the equivalent in the United States is is that idea of, you know, you you immerse yourself in a community of people who are, um, in a, in a sense, separating themselves from the rest of the world. And I think one of the thing that was things that was interesting about James Lawson and his work is that he, he said, you have to go through training. You have to go through uh, months of preparation before you practice uh, nonviolence. You have to know the philosophical roots, but the ultimate goal was to engage, was to go out and take that, that knowledge out and change the world. And, and I think sometimes it becomes you change yourself. And in doing that, you're isolating yourself from the world. So I, so I think that that's one of the critiques that offer. Um, and, and it's not, I don't think, where is the line between that isolation and the engagement? You know, I think that that's one of the things that people believe in nonviolence, have to confront of, of when when do you becomes so immersed in an alternative way of life that you don't have any impact in the world as it is.
0: Right, right.
2: May I come in there for a
1: second? Please.
0: Sure.
1: I absolutely endorse what Clay has said. I think it's tremendous and it's very relevant in today's, India. by the way, what Joe also said is also, also extremely relevant in today's India because <clears throat> making India physically clean is is as crucial a need, uh, a national need. It's not just a personal matter. So he, he made a tremendous point, but I think the point Clay makes is also absolutely important. And, you know, when I said that uh, African-Americans fighting for, uh, for their equality here had faced a very tough challenge because much of the population was not in favor of them. And the same is true in today's India, today's India, when there is this tremendous uh, injection of, you know, hatred of of, of the Muslims who are a very crucial uh, minority, 14-15% of the Indian population. Uh, You know, uh, there are the Dalits, the so-called former untouchables, the the, the Adivasis, the so-called tribals, and the Muslims. These three taken together are the blacks of today's India. And they face tremendous uh, difficulties, persecution, oppression. And so, uh, Gandhi and nonviolence, and those who want justice and, and, and equality and fairness, have to address these tremendous challenges in today's India. So I, I, I I'm grateful for what uh, Clay pointed out. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, gosh, thank you all so much. Um, I'm afraid we've come to the end of this segment, but I do want to thank you all, Rajman Gandhi, Claiborne Carson, and Joe Alter for joining us for this first part of the program. We'll be back in just a moment with a conversation about caste. I'm Joan Kerr, and this is World Canvas from University of Iowa International Programs. Hello again, and welcome to part two of World Canvas. Our topic is Gandhi at 150. Caste is the focus of this part of our program. Caste is a form of social stratification that defines groups as having more or less privilege, establishes that some are seen as more or less worthy, signals more or less opportunity, persists generation after generation, and is the often unspoken but deeply ingrained determinant of one's place in the world. Many of us are aware of a caste system in India, but until recently, I don't think caste was a construct most of us recognized in the American story. But Isabel Wilkerson is changing that. In her recent book, Caste, Wilkerson makes the case that the systemic and seemingly insurmountable problems we have in our own country are, in fact, born of a caste system to discuss caste in India in historical terms and also its present manifestations, we'll be rejoined by Rajman Gandhi and joined for the first time by Siraj Yangday. I'd like to go first to Rajman Gandhi. Uh, Rajman, as you know, is a research professor in education policy and organization and leadership at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. He's an historian, an author, and has been a member of the Indian Parliament, led the Indian delegation to the UN Human Rights Commission in Geneva, and is the former president of Initiatives of Change International. Rajman is also the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, Thank you again for being with us in this part of the program, Rajman. Uh, yeah. I wonder if you can help us understand how Gandhi viewed caste hierarchies. Well, he was totally
1: opposed to them, totally and frontally opposed to them. Uh, but here, let me point this out. Uh, we earlier you know, discussed uh, nonviolent direct action for independence. Now, broadly speaking, Gandhi had three very tough goals, big goals, apart from personal goals. There was India's independence from British rule. And there was the Hindu-Muslim situation, uh, tension. You know, there's been tension for a long time, how to uh, bring these two groups together. And thirdly, the caste question and the hierarchies and the horrible and unspeakably horrible treatment of the so-called untouchables. So Gandhi fought on all those three fronts, but he had to prioritize his struggles. Yeah, on the caste question, I, you know, it's, uh, those who have studied his life know that early on in his married life, he went, uh, went in, was in South Africa as a young couple, and uh, he had uh, Indians of untouchable background staying in his home, which, uh, you know, for Indians uh, by conventional Indian standards, that was quite a revolutionary step. But he asks his wife, uh, to deal with the chamber part of this guest who is, so so to speak, quote unquote, from an untouchable background. And because she's uh, reluctant to do what she does, Gandhi is very tough with her. He's domineering. He's demanding that she should join him in his social reform activities. So they're there and, and his wife fights back and which is good that she fights back. But But then later on, when he returns to India, Uh, And he starts uh, his work in India. He starts the center, the ashram. And he admits an untouchable family in the ashram. And his wife again reacts. And some others react. And he even says to his wife, if you want to go, you can go. But I have to have these people in my center. So in his personal life, and his family life, he was radical and revolutionary from the start. But... He needed the caste Hindus, the so-called high caste Hindus, for the freedom movement. He couldn't alienate them so that they would uh, uh, resist his freedom movement. He needed them for Hindu-Muslim reconciliation and partnership. So he had to impose often in his life restraint on himself on how radical he could be to oppose caste. But as his life continued and as the freedom movement advanced, he became more and more radical in the latter part of his life. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't talk about this in the first segment, but I wonder, uh, we're talking about caste, but I, I know that Gandhi was accused or has been accused by some as being racist when he was in South Africa. Is that fair?
1: Uh, uh, no, in, <laughs> in <laughs> short, it is totally unfair. Uh, and. Uh, you know, those who want to assess Gandhi's time in South Africa between 1893 and 1915 have to understand that period. Uh, and in that period, uh, the, the those who afterwards became leaders of the African nationalist movement. You know, there's a man called John Dubé, one of the founders of the African National Congress, who was one of Gandhi's friends in, in South Africa. Gandhi, in his print, small printing press, printed John Dubé's uh, journal. They were in the same area in near Durban. So, uh, uh, and then there's this man called Albert Lutuli. Most people don't know his name now, but he was the first South African to get the Nobel Prize for fighting apartheid in South Africa in 1961. This was years before Mandela, years before Archbishop Tutu. Mm -hmm. Mm
4: -hmm.
1: So, now, what does Lutuli, and Mandela calls Lutuli Gandhi's passionate disciple, and Lutuli, uh, speaking in the United States in 1948, he refers to John dubey who was Gandhi's friend, you know, in 1905, and then he, one of those who started the African National Congress. And, uh, uh, and Lutuli said, Lutuli said in Washington DC, in a talk at Harvard University, that what Gandhi did for the Indians of South Africa, inspired John Dubey and others to do the same for the Africans in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So although Gandhi didn't directly take part in the freedom movement of the Africans, what he did for the Indians uh, played a very considerable part in what the African leaders were later able to achieve.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank- yeah, please, did you have something else you wanted?
1: Yes, because you know, you know uh, uh, two uh, professors in South Africa of Indian origin have written a book about Gandhi's alleged racism and many, and people should read that book. It has lots of interesting information. I've also studied that book with with care. It is interesting because it does show that at that time, Gandhi uh, did support the British rulers of South Africa. He did not take part in the African struggle, but uh, it also shows uh, you know, people like Jude, John, John dubey they also did not take part in the African struggle. There was a, there was a very courageous but uh, failed rebellion, the Bambata rebellion of 1905 or six in South Africa. But the African leaders themselves uh, were opposed to it. Mm-hmm. And in this book, uh, which does detail Gandhi's alleged, in my opinion, uh, incorrectly assessed racism in South Africa, uh, the important point to note is, There is not a single reference in that book of any Indian in South Africa or any African in South Africa at that time or any Indian at that time in India
5: uh, uh,
1: disagreeing even in the slightest way or criticizing Gandhi in the slightest way. There is no contemporary criticism of Gandhi in South Africa at that time. So today, if we take some isolated... uh, there were many remarks Gandhi made at that time that were very, 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 very foolish remarks. were uh, Remarks he should not have made, but they were. They did not indicate racism. They indicated some ignorance. They indicated the, the time. Uh, it's important to note that at that time, at that time, not a single African, not a single Indian, in South Africa or in India, criticised. Gandhi's approach, those times are very different from today.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for that. And, um, and now I'd like to uh, introduce our next guest, Siraj Yangde, a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and the author of Caste Matters. Uh, great pleasure to have you with us here today, Siraj, for World Canvas. Thank you. Thank you, Joan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to get us started, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your own background.
5: Um, I come from India. I am one of the Dalits um, and um, uh, with an Indian uh, landscape, the social sphere is deeply divided and deeply discriminatory. Uh, so it's a very difficult life for someone like me to survive in the caste chamber that emits obnoxious sense of derogatory, Uh, policies as well as societal attitudes that makes it uh, difficult and uh, I come from a community where every day 10 women from my community get raped Mm
6: -hmm.
5: and 5 men from my community get men and women both get murdered and my community is the one who cleans the human excreta. they are forced to do their job and every fifth day one Dalit who enters a manhole Comes out as a dead body.
0: Uh, And so I can only imagine how how difficult it was for you to get the education you received and to, um, you know, to accomplish what you have so far in in your life. Um, uh, How did you? I, I know I don't want to say leave that community because you are clearly still very very connected emotionally, at least, with the community you've come from. But you are now uh, here in the United States and traveling elsewhere in the world. You're a respected scholar. Uh, how how did this change happen for you?
5: Um, Ambedkar. He inspired many people like me to pursue education. Ambedkar is the contemporary of, so to speak, our protagonist today, Gandhi,
4: mm-hmm.
5: um, who himself... Uh, was highly educated of his times, two doctorates, one in Colombia, actually an outcome of two uh, educational towering locations, America and London. Mm-hmm. And he did unthinkable, uh, the first untouchable to achieve whatever he could. And we are talking about the early 1910s and 20s yeah. and ends up writing India's constitution. So for a community that has, whose history has been wiped off from the slate as if they don't exist and they don't matter, to look at the past and think about something is unthinkable because you don't know anything. It's almost everything Uh, you're staring in darkness where there is no light. And so Ambedkar is that force uh, that comes as an inspiration and almost he described himself as Moses-like character for his people.
0: Yeah. Well, we heard uh, Professor Gandhi's uh, response to a question about Gandhi and caste. Um, Do do you have uh, thoughts about that as well?
5: Professor Gandhi was correct uh, when he was describing about uh, Gandhi's uh, foot in many locations uh, and uh, his emphasis on India's independence. Whenever we try to understand independence, we have to see what the oppressed think about that independence. Was that independence going to bring any significant change in the life of the most crushed people who have been destined to the most despicable life that they can have? Is there a guarantee that the elite castes will consider them as their compatriots in the broader fraternities? Mm
4: -hmm.
5: And if we have a certain answer to this, then we might have to rethink, what does independence entail? Mm -hmm. Does it really bring about a fundamental change in the life of of those people who want to alter and change their lives for better good? Uh, Dalits did not see hope in that because it's basically replacing white men with the elite caste who already were dominating us. India has repeated episodes of colonizations. The Aryans came, imposed caste system. And so we have a record of 3,000 year plus colonizations. If you look through my experience and my ancestors' experience and the tribal people, the indigenous Indians, we were subjugated to an untouchable status by the colonizers. So British period legally is 90 years from Queen's proclamation to uh, the departure British year rule. And if you add East India Company, you might add 100 years here and there. Mm -hmm. Uh, What does it mean in the broader picture of 5,000 years of civilization?
0: Sure. Uh, Is there anti-caste activism in India and also here in the US?
5: Very much so. Um, It's actually, and it's, it's very interesting that the Hindus who espouse a certain dharmic value and a value of non-violence and peace, these are all klishmack levers. These are all uh, uh, foolish attributes that one brings forth when you uh, brutally suppress the voice of dissent from an untouchable like me. When I bring out these voices uh, right now, I've been complained by the Hindu American groups to Harvard for raising the issues because I am being disrespectful to Hinduism. So, so when we talk about this, uh, it's, it's, it's a fascist, Brahminism is fascism in India. And people who are part of this upper order are beneficiaries. You might comfortably reject that, you might despise that, but you benefit from that mm-hmm. because it's a system, it's a structure that is standing on our throats. Mm-hmm. And if our throats are removed, it will crumble. So for it to survive, it has to keep on killing us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and in that order, uh, we see a very brutal system, not only existing in India, but also it's outposts uh, which are existing not in really America, elsewhere too. And this is not unique to, and, and this is growing. <laughs> this is really growing. Fascism was a problem uh, for us, uh, much part of the uh, 20th century. Brahminism, I fear, might become the twenty-first century's malady. Hmm.
0: So, w- within India, um, I, may I classify the the procast folks as right wing? You're referring to them as as fascist groups, the the Brahmins.
5: No, they are they are left wing. They are centrist and right wing too, hmm. because they are invested in preserving the order, even though okay. they might. They might criticize, but we don't see. We had left governments in India. You still have untouchables begging on the streets. You have centrist governments harassing us for so many years, and now the right wing. For us, this don't change. The point is, if you look from a black person's perspective in America, a white person having in the position doesn't mean nothing. Might be you know a person from different political party and stuff like that, but they inherit a structure that's not gonna. They're gonna not gonna threaten their own kids. Yeah. At the end of the day, they want to protect, but at what cost? At the cost of black people, the black kids, they're going to kill. Same is with us. So the people who come with this uh, uh, abominations of the system mean nothing to us unless and until the structure is altogether subverted, not changed. This is a structure of hierarchy. We want to make it like this. But for that to achieve, we want to hit equality. Mm -hmm. And and for us to have equal uh, structure, we need a radical approach of how do we replace these hierarchies and this, the liberal order cannot do that because it has failed time and again. That's why. Why is right wing in on rise? <laughs> because liberalism fails. I mean, this is a theory. I mean, uh, you know, London River Books just came out with an ex- excellent uh, article on rise of conservatism and the purposes that liberal values have really worked with protecting both interests. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, uh, Gandhi uh, was one of those uh, who couldn't really satisfy. Uh, the hunger and thirst of people who are really fighting for liberation, not just freedom.
0: So, do you do you f- see any future for um, the the um, elimination of the caste structure in India? I mean, do you do you believe that that's possible within you know your lifetime? Is this a a goal that can be reached?
5: That's why I'm alive. Yeah. We are hopeful. We're optimistic, and we'll continue to fight. Uh, we need more people like me uh, in the spaces uh, who will usher. Their breath into that dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, one can philosophize uh, moribund ideas. Uh, one can overtly canonize individuals and hagiographies and think about a particular person. But my question remains why were African Americans not told about Ambedkar? Mm-hmm. The natural alliance for Black people are Dalits, not Baniyas, not Brahmins, not the high caste people.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: The enemy which is white enemy is different than what is white enemy for India, a colonial structure. And here a settler structure. Mm-hmm. And so the question is when MLK goes to India, why is he not even told that, hey, you know what? Like you, there is an untouchable leader here. You might wanna, might wanna uh, you might wanna know. But I think it's the policy of the Congress government. Mm-hmm. Uh, who who really suppressed everything that had to do with Ambedkar and the, the dignity. And it's only now, 70 years later, uh, people like me are trying to fill that gap that 70 years were wasted under the patronage of the high caste oppressors.
0: Yeah. Um, what is the position of progressive white, black and South Asian groups on caste?
5: Um, in America?
0: Uh, yeah, in America or? you
5: know, worldwide? I mean, it's, it's uh, to my experience, there have been quite a, uh, you know, genuine interest mm-hmm. uh, amongst all the groups, including South Asians, who really would like to put themselves to test mm-hmm. uh, and, 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 and very much have a Socratic dialogue as to start from your own criticisms. Can we, can we really have that dialogue? Uh, with a caste system in place, it's an order that you deliver and the receiver has to accept it because it's it's on it's it's placed on an unequal plane. But with this growing resurgence of uh, scholarship that is really displacing the existing models that are not having uh, any concrete ideas of liberation of oppressed peoples, uh, the interest is growing. And 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 across the board, at least wherever I go, I've seen uh, this interest coming across people. They want to know more about it. They wanna they wanna thinking about this also uh, there exists a group among these people also uh, which 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 really tries to uh, uh, be mischievous in their interpretation, uh, in their deliverance, uh, in their uh, e- even in their um, scholastic uh, documentation of whatever we are doing and it's just it's just uh, depressing to see and it's sad that people who would expect especially, uh, in the educated university spaces or within the media spaces, uh, especially the dominant caste people, uh, they they really tend to attend to these issues. And and you know the the affection of uh, Hindu values among white people, especially the hippie culture white, uh, 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 is is really fraught because uh, once you ask them what about the caste system, it's always put as a third agenda,
0: like Gandhi did. Yeah. Mm. If, uh so I understand that the the current Indian government is not making moves, correct to to change the caste structure. what what would be some first steps you know if if there, there were an opening? is education for all people in in all levels of society is is education a way out?
5: Oh indeed, I think you know um, and and I think we need to you know that's where Ambedkar comes crucially. You know he asked us, Stay hungry, but get educated. Okay. And that's as unthinkable. That's basically the first uh, uh, hammer into the structure of caste. Uh, it's, it's, it's not going on it, it's going in it. And, 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 and um, well, education has helped us, but uh, still, uh, the discrimination and exclusion that continues to take place. I'll just highlight the statistics when kids enter school by six to 11 years old, 89% of Dalit kids are in the class. But then when they go to high school, to college, it drops down to 60%. And by the time they go to university, only 11 percentage of them are there. And of that 11, 2.49% only graduate. So I'm one of those 2.4% of uh, the 300 million Dalits we have in India.
0: And would you say that it, it's mostly, it it's the inability to to. Uh, not provide that helpful role for your family in terms of um, helping to gain income and so on. Is is that what um, keeps some of the students from progressing forward, or they're just not able to be admitted because the next level school, maybe the the university, just doesn't want to have more than a small percentage of numbers of Dalits in in their um, admissions group. Uh, you know, what is it that that keeps those kids from progressing all the way through
5: it's a the family condition these are the children uh, of uh, servants maids chauffeurs mm-hmm. uh, people who work on construction sites mm-hmm. these are the people who are in the lowest chain uh, and they are so vulnerable that uh, a slight change in their lifestyle will just eliminate them from the from the from the order yeah.
0: um,
5: and in addition to that we have a structural casteism it's no accident that parents, when they're sending the kids in such numbers, 81% going primary school, by the time they go to university, 20 years of time, the mm-hmm. structure did not encourage them to stay in school. It, it worked full time to exclude. And with, with with that comes the responsibility of how uh, who is teaching and how the education curriculum is conducted. Mm-hmm. Uh, 74% of university faculties in India are high caste Hindus. And let me just place you the number. The percentage of high caste Hindus is only 16% of India's population. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: So 16 percentage cover almost 74, 75%. So we see disparity. India lives in apartheid state.
0: Yeah, yeah. Is there any difference in, um, be- between traditional villages and the big cosmopolitan cities in the way caste is reflected or observed? Is there any difference?
5: And, you know, this is where when, we, when whenever rural and urban fascination comes, critique mm-hmm. of Gandhi has to come. Gandhi believed in the village republic, which was not his idea. It was a Scottish scholar who, who, who advocated, who really romanticized the idea of village republic. Village republic is basically a cesspool for Dalits. It is a strict hierarchy. You work for your landlord. You are disgusted under the conditions of subhumanity. And your women get raped by the landowning caste. So if you are from a dominant caste, you might love it. It's a Mars, it's, it's a new uh, tablet that you want to have your uh, safe moment, but for Dalits, it is not. And so for us, village life has never been of equal because we never owned resources. We were uh, the chattels for disposal whenever we want to. Our children, uh, by the time they stand on their feet are taught how to tend farms instead of teaching how to catch pens. And that's why in rural areas, uh, that uh, condition is, has, has remained unchanged. And this is, uh, I mean, there is no uh, doubt on any circles from any ideologies who, who openly confess, because if you go to Indian village and I encourage people to go, uh, there are two villages in one village. One is the village village and other is the ghetto, the untouchables ghetto. And many times I went to village and if I go, there are always two you know, and, and Dalits are excluded from the main civic. They live about a kilometer or two away from uh-huh. the village. And so even if you have to fetch water, you have to pass by village. And by passing by villages mean to attributing to the courts. You have to remove your sleepers. Uh, you have to have a certain mannerisms. You cannot have yourself most exposed and you cannot spit. You can only walk through certain uh, at certain hours. And this is a condition I'm talking about right now. This might really sound anachronistic and old, but this is what is happening, you know, major. And, and we continue to see this uh, incorporate. So even for water, uh, they need to rely on high castes. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, which we call oppressor caste or criminal castes. Uh, and, and, and these criminals then have a social boycotting if Dalits void any of the caste rules they impose. So urbanization was the approach. And many times when one Dalit commits, uh, let's say blasphemy of a Hindu religious order, which is to challenge caste system, it is not one person who receives punishment. It is an entire village, the ghetto of Dalits that's why you see displacement of dalits dalits leaving their households for several generations and and moving en mass and 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 when they go to urban areas they become the beggars they are the people who you see on the streets because they have been, not been uh, accommodated into the into the into the urban structure that's why indian dalits remain the refugees of india's current system
0: yeah yeah well, um, maybe just one last question, what would it take for the current generation to address caste?
5: You know, I think we need to start, we need to we need to be confessing our faults like white people in America do, at least the liberal ones, not talking about other ones, who at least have at least what we saw George Floyd last summer, some of them were brave enough to confess and they fought against their own white people. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a dominant caste person getting into fist fights not just intellectual fights. We need fights on both levels. We can't just have a, a melodies of dialogue to take place. Um, we haven't seen the liberals who profess certain values of India, South Asia, uh, religion, the cosmopolitanism and, and you know cherish it, never taking the arms to fight against their own people.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: There is no progress if the dominant caste fight against themselves. And the ones who believe in the humanity of themselves and as well as the most vulnerable, it is upon them to take the responsibility because a Dalit is already fighting the hell that has been imposed on them. Mm-hmm. And they can't take another, another extra layer of oppression and burden on them. Uh, and if that happens, you know, and we want people encouraging that, you know, fight against your own kinds. And fight it like Dalits are fighting. Don't fight it like you want to fight. Because in your fight, you'll be more soft. You'll be more uh, vanilla. You'll be more delicate. Uh, we don't need that. We need aggressive action. And that will really process a, a, a firm resolution. Or else we will have the same dialogue uh, with my grandchildren and your descendants. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this important discussion, Suraj. real pleasure to talk to you. Um, I also want to say thank you to Rajmohan Gandhi, who joined us earlier in this segment. This is World Canvas from UI International Programs, and I'm Joan Kerr. We'll be back in just a moment with our final group of guests who will consider Gandhi's legacy. Thank you. Welcome back to World Canvas. I'm Joan Kerr for UI International Programs, and we're pleased to have you with us for our program on uh, Gandhi. This program is being recorded and will be available on the International Programs website, the Public Radio Exchange, iTunes, and YouTube. Our guests in this final part of the program will share their thoughts on Gandhi's legacy. I'm pleased to introduce our three guests, Paul Greeno, Professor Emeritus in the Department of History at the University of Iowa uh, Miti Mukherjee, Associate Professor in the Department of History at the University of Colorado at Boulder and Timothy Dobe, a professor in the Department of Religious Studies at Grinnell College. Welcome to you all. Um, Paul, if I may, I'd like to go to you first for your thoughts on Gandhi's legacy.
4: Um, thank you, John and uh... I, I have to say that I feel like I've taken an astringent bath after listening to Suraj Jengde. I'm still trying to recover and absorb <clears throat> and pour through the notes that I took on his uh, extraordinary uh, talk to us. Uh, if you're an American, you probably have a favorable view of Gandhi based on the enormous moral authority of uh, Martin Luther King. Um, Gandhi we know also was globally considered to be um, um, uh, a prophet, a philosopher, and uh, by some, even a saint. He was nominated for the uh, Nobel Peace Prize on five occasions before his uh, death. So uh, among large portions of the world, Gandhi uh, has uh, an intact and even uh, growing reputation. But the fact is that Gandhi's uh, legacy if by legacy we mean his ideas, his accomplishments, his reputation is under considerable uh, critique and in some parts of the world uh, under under attack. Uh, uh, a few moments ago, uh, Clay was talking about uh, Gandhi in uh, in South uh, in, in in Africa, and I have to say that in South Africa, well, there is among certain uh, scholarly. Uh, um, uh, scholarly uh, perspective, Gandhi's uh, reputation uh, is, is explored in, in the uh, influence on John Dubé, for example, as Rajmohan told us, uh, was uh, very considerable. Uh, among the populace at large, insofar as they think about Gandhi, I would say Gandhi's reputation is in tatters. Uh, <clears throat> a few years back, I went to, uh, to Durban with a group of students and other faculty members, and we visited uh, a couple of the uh, ashrams and settlements of uh, Gandhi, and was astonished to see that all the building, all the structures, uh, had been uh, torn to pieces um, and uh, were being uh, used uh, for, uh, uh, for uh, 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 basically for firewood. Uh, there's a there's a there's a broad hostility uh, uh, to uh, to Gandhi in South Africa. I'll just sort of put it like that. And the reason uh, for this is that. Gandhi made in print a number of very unflattering racial distinctions, uh, uh, statements about the alleged high moral and intellectual capacity of Indians and Europeans, as opposed to the allegedly low capacity of Africans. And knowledge of this uh, is actually very widespread, um, at least in, in urban areas of, uh, of uh, South, uh, South Africa. But it's in India itself. That Gandhi's legacy is most hotly disputed and subject to the most intense criticism, and the focus of it obviously is coming from the uh, community of of, uh, uh, from from the Dalit Dalit community for reasons that were just explained. The hostility, uh, the state of hostility between Ambedkar and Gandhi, was a feature of of uh, history itself in the 30s and the 40s. But subsequently, the view has, uh, if anything, intensified. There is there is uh, there is no accommodation between uh, Gandhi and and the um, and the untouchable uh, community. But in addition to that, uh, it's actually the current uh, government of uh, India itself, uh, the the BJP, which is the ruling political party in India, has a very uh, it has. Uh, there's some degree of, of uh, subtlety about it, but it has generally a very hostile view of uh, Gandhi. But it confronts the fact that uh, Indians have, up until the last 10 years or so, have had governments which have emphasized uh, the, uh, the, the wisdom, the accomplishment, uh, uh, the uh, um, saintly qualities, and the martyrdom of Gandhi as a, as a fact of uh, public uh, public life. Uh, So the the present government, the BJP government uh, is engaged in a rather difficult uphill task of trying to convince the public at large that Gandhi was uh, not a martyr, not a hero, not a saint, not a prophet, and not a philosopher. And in fact, he is a traitor. This is the uh, official position of the BJP party, of party leaders and of a range of other institutions and organizations close to the government, which is in power, And uh, they have been, uh, with a certain uh, uh, intensity and thoroughness uh, for the last six years, uh, set out to uh, either uh, destroy Gandhi or to uh, transform his uh, actual uh, uh, deeds and statements in such a way that he appears to be other than he was. Uh, They have tried to turn him into a good Hindu patriot in accord with BJP. Hopes and expectations. So this is a uh, astonishing uh, development, and probably comes as a bit of a shock to Americans who are used to thinking of Gandhi in uh, in entirely different terms.
0: Uh, yeah, you know, uh, before the program this evening, you you and I communicated a little bit, and you said that Gandhi's place in public life in Iowa and in the U.S. since the '20s um, may have some may reflect some controversy, but. Um, he was clearly linked with the nonviolent movement that developed here uh, from the 40s and 50s and 60s um, during our um, during our, those very important civil rights times here in the U.S. Um, how how do you how do you feel his um, his teachings his example are? Um, you know, are, are considered today by the public. Do people remember Gandhi? Do people remember Martin Luther King and the kind of nonviolent resistance was that that some of us are old enough to have lived through? But um, you know, for, for a couple of generations here, this is this is history.
4: Well, I, I I've, I’ve never seen, a, for example, a, a measurement of public opinion about Gandhi’s reputation. Uh, but both of them, Martin Luther King and Gandhi, are in danger, of course, by becoming uh, celebrated uh, uh, um, uh, heroes of turning points in our, in our history or uh, 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 epics in which history is, is uh, changed. There's a danger of them being congealed into uh, 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 gods uh, of the uh, fixed quality Uh, lacking in uh, personal development or any uh, form of uh, interiority. And I think that's the situation that uh, now we've sort of reached in which Martin Luther King is celebrated in in textbooks. There's a holiday around his birthday, of course. Uh, The real Martin Luther King and the struggles of Martin Luther King are not very apparent. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gandhi's influence on Martin Luther King uh, well, well-known among the group of people who are watching our uh, world canvas, I think is not part of general uh, knowledge uh, in our country. Uh, I may be mistaken, but I don't, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't think it's the case.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, how do Indian Americans uh, feel about Gandhi, as as far as you know?
4: Well, that's a very that's a very interesting mm-hmm. question. Uh, It's hard, one should be careful and not generalize, but generally speaking, Indian Americans favor the uh, political party and the political leadership in India at the moment, which is the BJP party, which has as an integral uh, part of its um, self-presentation, the notion that Gandhi was a traitor, uh, that he was uh, not a good Hindu that he sold out India to uh, Muslims and uh, uh, Pakistan, and therefore, he should not be honored. And insofar as uh, the bulk of uh, public uh, 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 of of, uh, Hindus, Indians in North America are Hindu, and the bulk of those Hindus are pro-BJP, to some extent, they're aware of this hostility. On the other hand, It's it's clear that the uh, general uh, world opinion of uh, attitude of approval toward uh, Gandhi uh, is a source of uh, of uh, pleasure because it puts India in a very very good light. So I would say ambivalence would be the the word I would mm-hmm. I would offer. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, thank you, Paul. Um, Let's move to Mitty Mukherjee. And um, you told me, Mitty, prior to today's conversation that Gandhi brought a new idea of freedom into politics, freedom as spiritual liberation that consisted in losing or going beyond one's identity. Can you tell us what you mean by that?
7: Yeah. uh, Well, first of all, it's a great pleasure for me to be part of this uh, distinguished panel. Thank you very much for inviting me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think to understand Gandhi's legacy, uh, we need to really understand uh, how Gandhi brought religion and spirituality into the Indian anti-colonial movement against British rule. And we all know that He did that, but the precise nature of spirituality that Gandhi introduced and its implications for Gandhian politics is not always very well understood. And this kind of uh, uh, feeds into what Paul was just uh, talking about. If you read uh, Gandhi's autobiography and his other writings, uh, you come across this term moksha, innumerable terms at times. Uh, In its English translation, it means a spiritual liberation through self-realization. In fact, Gandhi even goes to the extent of saying that moksha, or spiritual liberation, was his foremost goal in life, and that national independence, as urgent as it was, was of secondary importance. So this idea of spiritual liberation, in Jainism and Hinduism the term is moksha, and in Buddhism the term is nirvana, is only possible through the loss of one's identity whether it's individual identity or national, racial, religious, or caste identity. So the pursuit of this highest spiritual goal in these traditions is an experience in transcending all identities. It's important to note um, uh, that Uh, That an intrinsic part of this pursuit of spiritual liberation is the renunciation of desires through various ascetic practices. So if one follows Gandhi's life from South Africa until Indian independence, it's clear that he increasingly took on the persona of a renunciate and lived like one. And indeed, that is how people recognized him. Hence the term Mahatma, which is used in India to refer to renunciates and spiritual seekers. It's clear from Gandhi's autobiography and his other works that renunciation and asceticism were central to his life and politics. Practices, as uh, Professor Alter was pointing out, uh, such as frequent fasting, uh, celibacy, maintaining silence on certain days of the week, um, uh, you know, practicing different kinds of diets, Um, uh, But I would like to point out that that for Gandhi, humanitarianism, compassion and ascetic practices were at the spiritual core of all religions and not just these three religions that I just mentioned. Um, Gandhi was very aware of this opposition between this idea of spiritual liberation based on the transcending of identity and the modern idea of freedom that is anchored in representational politics. So the modern idea that British and other European colonizers took to different parts of Asia and Africa was based on national identity, nationalism, and the nation state on the one hand, and individual rights on the other. Uh, What we have to remember is that Gandhi was extremely critical of this idea of freedom in its connection to a discourse of identity. So he pointed out that the rise of modern democracy in the West had coincided with the process of violent colonization unprecedented in its scale. And that wars in the modern era, uh, particularly the two world wars, were devastating in their impact, were, after all, wars that were based on a discourse of national identity. So Gandhi was convinced that this modern discourse of freedom was not a solution, but indeed a source of major problems, such as colonialism and wars. Um, And I I feel that we cannot grasp uh, Gandhi's legacy of nonviolence unless we understand the significance of this difference between these two ideas of freedom.
0: Um, how did the um, spiritual liberation beyond identity help Gandhi develop political alliances between you know, disparate groups?
7: Um, yeah, in well, in popular perception and in uh, many scholarly works, uh, Gandhi's anti-colonialism is often identified with nationalism. Uh, in my view, Gandhi was not a nationalist. Uh, even as he created one of the most effective and unified mass movements against colonialism, uh, Gandhi was well aware of the dangers of a discourse of nationalism, which, insofar as it was based on identity, was intrinsically connected to ideas and practices of exclusion. Uh, by the late 18th century and in, uh, by the late 19th century and into the 20th century, the British had come to base their empire on a policy of divide and rule. And they use the modern discourse of freedom as part of that policy. As a result, by the 20th century, Indians were increasingly mobilizing themselves in the name of multiple identities, such as religious caste, ethnicity, language, region, which created divisions in the anti-colonial movement. And that was Gandhi's major challenge. How do you keep this movement unified um, and and consolidated? So it was in this context that the notion of spiritual liberation beyond identity and violence allowed gandhi to bring together people and community of communities of diverse identities on one platform against the british empire uh, gandhi's insistence on nonviolence in this movement was essentially tied to his emphasis that all indians make consistent efforts to rive, rise above exclusive specific identities even as they fight colonialism
0: Mm-hmm. Um, do you think these Gandhi uh, Gandhi's teachings you've just been talking about are they still relevant to Indians today?
7: Yes, I think very much so. Uh, the um, the government uh, at independence. Uh, fell back on a kind of modern Western discourse of identity and freedom. So this increasing division between people on the basis of religious identities, but also linguistic caste, ethnic identities has led to escalating violence in India. Um, As we know, Gandhi himself was assassinated by a Hindu nationalist, uh, which goes to show how different Gandhi's politics was and that it went beyond this discourse of national identity. Uh, at a time when identity politics is increasingly turning violent, not just in India, but worldwide, it's worthwhile, I think, to remember the Gandhian legacy of a politics beyond violence and identity.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, Thank you, Miti. Really appreciate it. Um, and, and now I'd like to come to our third guest, um, Tim Doeb. Thank you for being with us. And uh, uh, let me just ask you the same question. What, how do you assess uh, Gandhi's legacy today?
6: Well, thanks for having me. Um, and it's nice to see um, Rajwaan Gandhi again. We uh, were honored to have him here at Cornell a few years ago um, and to meet uh, and see again some of you as well. Thanks for your presentations and for having me. Uh, I'm not in a place to assess Gandhi's legacy, I would say. Um, I'm, I can offer some comments on it. And I think as we've heard tonight, Gandhi's legacy is unsettled. Um, between uh, Professor Yengde's comments um, and some tensions with um, Rajmohan's comments and kind of coming from embedkarite and Gandhian perspectives, these tensions are are real Um, and they mirror very much. um, For for example, some of the tensions in the legacy of the civil rights movement. Um, So far, we've talked about that only in terms primarily of the mainstream civil rights movement and not the nation of Islam. Um, Malcolm X and other figures who, who were not happy, um, like Ambedkar was not happy with Gandhi's leadership. Some of the other more radical movements um, were um, are, are kind of not remembered well or just not remembered. Um, so my own, my own work has focused on kind of thinking about what's been forgotten or what gets marginalized. And, you know, when uh, Donald Trump went to um, India uh, not long ago, um, that, that event was marked, uh, his visit was marked by um, tens and tens of Muslims being killed in the streets uh, of, of New Delhi um, under uh, Prime Minister Modi's uh, regime. And so we've heard a lot uh, from uh, Rajwan and others about the place of Muslims uh, in, current, uh, in the current Indian situation, but also I want to link that to the place of Muslims in the U.S. situation. Um, and so for my own my own work, it kind of comes from a, the question of how have Muslims been marginalized in the in the telling and retelling of Gandhi's story and his legacy. And it's, it's pretty striking um, in many ways. And I can only, you know, only give you a few examples of that. But so, for example, at Phoenix Settlement, where um, Paul talked about visiting, I think, in Durban it was one of the places where there had been a kind of um, destroyed. Uh, When I went just a few years ago, it has been rebuilt. Um, And so it's preserved and kind of restored in many ways. But in the intellectual influence center where Thoreau is and the Bible is and all sorts of influence on Gandhi, what's noticeably missing is the Quran. There is no mention of the Prophet Muhammad. There is no mention of the Quran. And as Rajman said already, um, not only was Hindu-Muslim unity a major point for Gandhi himself, but Gandhi was deeply, deeply influenced religiously uh, by reading the life of the prophet, uh, by reading the Quran. And this has largely been left out. There's only one book uh, written about Gandhi's uh, influence, uh, being influenced by Islam. Only one monograph. And, and how many books have there been written about Gandhi? So this is um, part of the unsettled legacy, I would say. And you know, it's not um, a mistake or coincidence that in the history of the US, Islam has been associated with militancy of a kind that is not assimilable to the, the white supremacist structure of our country. Right. So you tell the story of Dr. King as a loving example that contrasts the so-called hate of Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam. Um, and that is a story that has to be rethought and re, retold. Uh, and similarly, uh, to, to connect to uh, Professor Day's comments, uh, Muslim identity is is not identical to Dalit identity in 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 um, India, of course, but there are also deep overlaps uh, between them. Uh, one that you know, those that I'm kind of studying, it's kind of sociologically, um, m- many of the conversions of both Christians and Muslims historically um, in India are from those those groups, and it's, there's no, um, there's a reason why Dr. Embedkar looked at as considered converting to Islam as one of his first choices to leave Hinduism um, and destroy caste, because there was no redemption, no reform, according to him. Um, So I would say in short, the legacy of Gandhi is unsettled. Um, The critiques on race and caste are are very relevant um, and important in being faced in new ways, I think, um, precisely because of Isabel Wilkerson's book and other things that we're hopefully more aware of in the U.S., uh, speaking for myself as a white, white-identified person, um, in this context,
0: mm-hmm. what for you are the lasting contributions that that um, Gandhi made to his own time and and the time since? Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, I'm not alone, and it's probably summing up what some of us been said. It, it, I think the David Hardiman is a scholar of of Gandhi and studies, and he talks about. Ghani's legacy, um, probably the most important contribution Gandhi makes is not just um, nonviolent movements, but this technique of satyagraha as a force of resistance, um, as a strategic organizing principle, philosophy, and a technique um, that has been kind of uh, adoptable and adaptable. And we heard um, Dr. Carson, I think it was, talk about Jim Lawson's you know, deep training in that in India and bringing it back in. The, Slightly new way. That was new for me. I didn't know that. Um, So I want to thank him for bringing that to us. And we think of Dr. King said, you know, that the the boycott, uh, the bus boycott was, um, you know, Jesus gave the spirit and Gandhi provided the method. So we do think that Dr. King was influenced by the method, but there's a depth to that, that, and a kind of radicality to that, that changes throughout the history of the movement. So it's that technique. Um, David Hardiman talks about that. And within political science, this is a kind of a major, trend in the past 20 years, um, where there's a figure called Gene Sharp, um, who was a political scientist, and he he recognized the kind of strategic importance of Gandhian nonviolence um, when he was studying the Indian movement and realized that though there is this philosophy, and for Gandhi, it is a principle, and he's a philosopher, and it's in your body, um, as Dr. Alter was saying, at the same time, most people that... um, participated in the movement, who made up the movement, whose, you know, skulls were cracked uh, at the salt works and so on. These were not philosophers. These were people committed to uh, a movement for liberation and they did it for strategic reasons. And so there's a strategic approach to nonviolence, um, which kind of put some of the philosophy to the side, I would say, and back to Dr. Yangde's points, might point out that uh, one of Ambedkar's first acts, um, public acts, was to adopt uh, satyagraha as a method of resistance, as a nonviolent method of resistance. Though he wasn't philosophically agreed with Gandhi, he would use some of the techniques and even use Gandhi's term to uh, describe, for example, um, resisting the um, exclusion from well water. So if you were said to be impure and pollute the well water, then he would insist on the right to bring Dalits to drink. He would burn the law books, the laws of Manu um, that said that his uh, fellow Dalits were impure. Public burnings of that, right, were like Gandhi's burnings of cloth, were radical public acts of resistance. Um, And he shared that in a way. And that's, we can see everywhere from Serbia um, to Iran to the Arab Spring to um, various movements, Black Lives Matter, these are these techniques of mass resistance in a more radical form that are not just, uh, as has been said many times, not passive in any sense, but militant, mm-hmm. I think is um, part of that legacy.
0: Mm-hmm. Amiti or Paul, do you have anything further you might like to add before we close the discussion? Well, if not, I just want to say thank you so much, uh, uh, Tim Doeb and Paul Grino and Miti Mukherjee and all of the guests who were with us earlier. Uh, It's been a really, really wonderful program. And um, uh, so thank you all for being here. And I want to say thank you to the members of the audience. This is the last program of the season, but we hope you'll join us again this September when we uh, reconvene. Recordings of all World Canvas programs are available on the International Programs website, on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and YouTube. And this program is a production of International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, wishing you a good night.